Welcome to the Uppity Women Podcast. Today we are visiting with Catherine Crisp and Gigi Peters about mindful self-compassion. Having self-compassion is probably the hardest thing for me to do. And um, as hard as I can be on other people, I am hardest on myself. Listening to this whole interview again as I edited was really useful to me. Um, Anytime I'm with Catherine, it's useful. Uh, And I just mean her own compassion for me and herself and everyone else. From the moment I met her, I don't even know how long it's been, uh, at least several years. We first connected through Women Lead Arkansas, and I think that was back in 2013, maybe 2014. And from the very second I met her, I just felt a real strong connection, a real warmth, and I am so grateful that she is part of my life and that I get to call her friend. So um, this is, I'm feeling very sappy right now, uh, just having listened to this. And also I kind of end talking about a, a death that had just happened when I recorded this conversation and it sort of took me back to that sad place. Um, but, you know, I, I probably should go to those places more um, because I tend to swallow pain. Uh Anger, not so much. I should probably work on swallowing my anger sometimes, but um, definitely pain. It's, you know, I I definitely feel like I'm supposed to be strong and help other people and solve other people's problems. And it is often to my own detriment. Um, And so this, listening to this was, again, it was very helpful. And um, I'll probably just have to keep listening to it. So I hope you do too. I hope you get something from it. I hope that if you are struggling, you'll reach out and don't isolate yourself like I tend to do. And um, there are resources. I will post to them in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, there are going to be quite a few links. Uh, We reference a lot of things. So I want to make sure that you have access to all of the the resources and the information that we talked about. And there's a a point at which I'm (laughs) very inartfully try to discuss sort of social media shaming and the call-out culture, and I don't really get the question out the way I intend to, and um, I I had recently read kind of a follow-up story on the woman I'm talking about, the PR woman, and you'll hear this in the show, and so I'll link to that story as well. So that was kind of on my mind, and I just wonder... (laughs) if there's a way to help people instead of just immediately canceling them. And uh, some people need to be canceled, no doubt, but I think there are others, including me, who don't always do it right and we're trying to learn and I'm not trying to be defensive, but I just wonder sometimes if we're hurting progress rather than letting people make their mistakes and go through this this painful process. So anyway, again, I'm already stumbling over myself uh, in this intro, so I'm going to stop doing that. But later in the conversation, I think that I'll understand what I was trying to ask. But that is a conversation I really would like to keep having, and I hope to do future shows on it. So if you're listening to this and have some ideas, please, please contact me. I'm, I want to do better, and I want us all to do better, and I want to talk about this, and I want to talk about it honestly and uh, with purpose. So anyway, and there was... Another, and I don't think I talk about a show specifically, but I was listening to another podcast. I'm going to try to find which one it was, Um, but it was a discussion about sex ed and that in the U.S. we tend to focus more on the biology, the science part of it. And in this European country, I I know we always are assuming that European countries are all so much better than us, and they are in some ways and not in others. But anyway, the point is that they, um, and I'm sure it was a Scandinavian country, 
they also focus on relationships and having healthy relationships. And as it turns out, in that country or in that area where they did this study or whatever they were talking about that I'm going to try to find, people there actually wait longer to have sex. So maybe that's something we should think about here. And I have a friend who is working on a project or an effort to combat teen pregnancy. And I'm going to get her on in the future once she sort of gets rolling. But I think this is something important that we should talk about. So uh, anyway, um, there's a lot here. Uh, There's a lot I really want to tell you, but the interview is is long enough already, so I'll stop now. And I just want to thank you for listening and, you know, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and let's make this a better place for everyone. I love you. Bye. My name is Gigi Peters, and I am the executive director of the University of Arkansas at Little Rock Mid-South. And Mid-South is the community service arm of the School of Social Work, which is the academic side. And I'm Catherine Crisp, and I'm an associate professor and the coordinator of the Masters of Social Work program at University of Arkansas at Little Rock. But for our purposes here, I'm also the only person in the state of Arkansas who's been formally trained to teach something called mindful self-compassion. And as of a few days ago, I'm also the only person formally trained to teach making friends with yourself, which is the mindful self-compassion for teens and young adults. Yes, don't let me forget when we talk about the teens, about the rise in um, young girls committing suicide. Yes. Which it seems to be higher among girls these days than boys. And I have my theories, which is middle school basically um so and and so you all know each other professionally mm-hmm. are you from Gigi? are you from arkansas i am okay and you're from arkansas originally so i lived right. here and then moved away for 26 years and then returned about 12 years ago actually right i don't even know where to start i know you Catherine, from women lead arkansas mm-hmm. um and i've always known you to be a terribly um <laughs> kind and thoughtful and compassionate person and one of my favorite people so it doesn't surprise me that you're doing this. It surprises me that you didn't do it sooner. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there was a vehicle to do it sooner. So talk about this, this mindful self-compassion within the structure of how you're working, teaching it and working with it. Okay, so mindful self-compassion is um, basically it's defined as treating ourselves in the way that we would treat a special or cherished friend. Because if you think about it, a lot of times we treat our friends a lot better than we treat ourselves. And with mindful self-compassion, or I'm just going to say MSC for short, what we want to do is we want to start treating ourselves with the same kindness that we would treat our friends. And one of the things, for example, that we do is we learn how to say the words to ourselves that we would offer to a friend. And I actually learned about this about three years ago. Um, The work has been promoted and developed largely by uh, two people, Kristen Neff, who is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin, also my alma mater, but I never worked with her. And then Christopher Germer, who is a psychologist and psychotherapist in the Boston, Massachusetts area. And they've developed this whole, basically, training program, eight-week training program. So I got trained in October of 2018, and then with Gigi's support in her role, um, was able to do an academic sabbatical whereby I offered the eight-week class 
to uh, Gigi and several of her colleagues and then four or five people from the community and did that in the spring of 2019 as the focus of my academic sabbatical for UALR. Are you training other teachers to be certified or people? I'm training people in the art and the magic and just the compassion, even though it's redundant, um, associated with mindful self-compassion. I'm training them, and training is probably a strong word because it's more about I'm offering them skills and tools, and if they want to embrace those or utilize those in whatever way, that's great, but there's no, there's not a whole lot of expectation that's simply kind of offering people these opportunities to learn something that's new and different. Training whoever wants to be trained at this point as long as they're 18 or older. But the theory is that when we start being more compassionate with ourselves, we're more compassionate with other people. We say that it's an inside-out job. It starts within, and then we put it out into the universe. And it's actually rather remarkable in a lot of ways. So I trained Gigi and I think seven or eight of her colleagues at Mid-South and then four or five community members. So um, Gigi, what was your interest in what Catherine was doing? Well, I've always been very interested in in sort of a, an Eastern philosophy and a Buddhist bent to things, and this seemed very similar to a lot of the things I had studied. And uh, self-compassion is not something that I'm very comfortable with, so it was something I knew that would be uh, a struggle for me a little bit, but also good for me. And also, um, I have attended several of Catherine's trainings, and I've worked with Catherine on several things, and I trust her. And I wouldn't want to go about this process with someone I didn't know and trust. And so um, that's, that's how it all happened. And I would imagine that it's a uh, continuous practice. Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Do you feel like there is a difference in the way you think about yourself and others and operate? Yes, I do. I have to catch myself, though. I mean, it's really easy for me to revert back to uh, patterns. Mm -hmm. But yes, I do. And um, one of, I don't know if I can talk about a specific exercise. I'm not going to talk about any people or anything like that. But there was one exercise in one of the classes where... um, we were, all of the students were were given the opportunity to pick or choose a here and now stone. And the here and now stone, that activity was very meaningful to me because I often, my brain works really fast and I have a lot of stuff going on and I'm an administrator and I don't get to do a whole lot of social worky type stuff, even though I'm trained as a social worker. Um, And the here and now stone, really is able to, I keep it in my pocket most of the time or it's in my purse if it's not, and I'm able to grab hold of it and it will just bring me here and now. And that doesn't seem like a really big thing, but when I'm projecting weeks in advance or what if this horrible thing happens that I have no control over mm-hmm. and and this one little stone just says, but right now, here is where you are. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, you can be self-compassionate about your worry. You know, it's okay to be worried. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay. But right now, here's where you are. And to me, that is an amazing thing to be able to just pull me here. I'm the same way. I am a fixer. um, So I'm always looking for problems to solve. And wow, there is a never ending supply of problems to solve. Yes. And so it's very hard for me to be in the moment and enjoy the moment. Mm -hmm. The only time I really feel like that is if I'm on a bike ride or out in nature because I'm so taken by the beauty of the world. And so that's really the only time. But of course, I don't make enough time to do that. Um, So I can relate to that completely, just the here and now. Um, So, Catherine, why do you, why do we not treat ourselves with compassion? You know, I I think it's interesting because I think ultimately as we live in a society, and frankly, particularly as women, and the class I had... It was the first class I ever taught, and it's always going to stand out in my mind because of that reason. But it was also kind of unique, and I and I say this with with phenomenal respect for men because I want to say I think self compassion is really hard for men. But the class we had was actually thirteen women, and I began to call it the thirteen brave women because just like Jeezy, those women, without knowing a whole lot about self compassion aside from a few paragraphs of information they got and a little bit from Gigi from what she had heard from me at faculty meetings and some of her conversations, they all decided to trust me. So to answer your question, I think it's hard for everyone, but particularly for women, because I think if there's a downside to the feminist movement, it's the that women now expect more of ourselves. We're expected to go out into the workforce. We're expected to be perfect in our jobs, overachieving in our jobs. We're expected to still maintain the same family responsibilities because there's research that shows that despite the feminist movement, men have not necessarily, in a lot of cases, picked up additional responsibilities in their homes, but women are doing more. So women are doing more. And I think we've created this set of expectations that we're supposed to do more, do more, do more. And, and we created this culture around being busy you know it's like a badge of honor oh how are you I'm busy I'm so busy I don't have time to spend 90 seconds with you in the moment at the grocery store I'm too busy for that look at how wonderful I am I'm too busy for that so we get all these messages that we're not enough and that's something I struggle with I mean a big part of what I heard as a child was you're not enough you know, but on the other hand, I also heard you're too much, you're too loud, you're too big, you're too fat, your feet are too big, your hair's too wild, whatever it was, it was you're too much, but I'm also not enough. And so all of that translates into this harshness. Like I was someone that walked around with this big old sledgehammer just beating myself up. And I think a lot of times women actually beat themselves up before anyone can else, excuse me, anyone else can beat us up. And there's a self-protection mechanism that we can talk about related to that called the inner critic. But it's so hard for us because we're constantly being told to do too much and we're rarely told, oh, you're okay just as you are. It's okay to have a little stone, or in my case, and actually I didn't bring them today and now I'm kind of feeling, I'm feeling a little bit of loss. I usually have this little stuffed animal elephant that I bring with me mm-hmm. to these moments and it's very tactile and it's very soothing. It's in effect my here and now stone. But we're not, we're not given permission to really relax and to just breathe and to say, you're out, you are enough. We're not given permission to talk to ourselves that way that we might talk to cherish friends. And I'm sure that there's all these sort of causal theories, but I just think it's because of the messages that we're being given in society, that we're, we're not enough, or we're too much, and whatever it is, we're not just as we need to be. Mm-hmm. Speaking of men, um, we as a culture don't 
teach them to be compassionate. We teach them to be tough and to fight each other and to be the masters of their domain or I guess whatever it is. And um, do you have many men? I know you're fairly new in this in this mm-hmm. journey, but um, do you talk to men about this, about the compassion for their themselves, which they're also not allowed to have? You know, it's, it's, it's funny because I think particularly as a social work professor, I think one of the things that social work education has neglected is actually social work for men. So I teach cultural diversity classes, and as best I can tell in talking to my colleagues, I'm the only one that does any content specifically on social work with men. So that said, when the opportunity arises, I absolutely seize it. And I'm gonna put in a little plug for this. Um, There is actually a YouTube video created by the director of the Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. His name is Steve Hickman. And if you Google Steve, S-T-E-V-E, Hickman, H-I-C-K-M-A-N, Mindful Self-Compassion for Men, it should pop up. And it's a wonderful video about how men can benefit from self-compassion. The Center for Mindful Self-Compassion that does all the teacher training and certification has trained about 1,200 teachers, very few of them, are men and even fewer of the fewer of the students, less of the students across the world are men. And I don't know what the percentages are, but we have a really hard time attracting men to this program. So one of my goals moving forward as I teach my classes in the future is really going to be to market and to attract it to men because I think men are hurting just as much as the women. Mm-hmm. We have a tendency to express it differently. There's research that shows men express anger externally, you know. You know, by getting out and expressing it in very physically outward ways, and women express anger internally, such as depression. Mm-hmm. And what we need is both. And I think we need a kinder, gentler society. And I think changing our internal voices is one way to achieve that. Yeah, it's interesting. As you're talking, I'm thinking about the presidential election, which we can get to politics later, but um, or maybe not. I don't know. Um, there are not enough antidepressants in the world for our politics these days. Uh, you know, women have, and I think that this might be changing a little bit. I think the conversation might be changing, but I think that what we've tried to do in these power positions or in, in trying to get to those positions is try to be more like men. And I think the world needs leaders who are, who are more like women, right? And that we don't immediately go to war. We don't immediately attack I don't know, the war on drugs. I mean, like, education, crime, all of the above. If we could approach everything, in my opinion, from a position of compassion, doesn't mean that we can't be angry about things, but anger doesn't usually solve the problem, right? And so um, I hope to see, one, a woman president this next time, um, but also I hope we allow her to be a woman. Does that make sense? Um, Because I do think that we have just tried to be tough, and I did that my whole life. I tried to act like a guy because I knew that women were treated differently, and I didn't want to be treated differently. So, And I think that that is what has kind of led me to create this kind of hard outer shell um, and be, you know, tough. But I'm not. I'm a human, you know, and so it's... um, Anyway, I don't know if I have a a kind of a a period to put on that sentence, but... uh, we can do better. Um, my sister has a, a son. He cries about everything. <laughs> everything. It's like, it's ridiculous. Even she will say that. But we don't want to stop that. You know, mm-hmm. we just let him cry, even though it's, like, ridiculous. 
I'm sorry, we don't have mac and cheese. <laughs> you know, it's it's that silly sometimes, but but we don't want to tell him not to do that because we want him to be able to feel all his feelings, you know, and, and, and work through those things. So, And I think it's so interesting. I think, you know, we tell women and young girls, it's okay to cry. You know, oh, you fell down, you scraped your knee, come to mommy, and we'll give you a hug. With boys, it's, it's suck it up, okay? Mm-hmm. The, I think... I think when you look at things like gun violence, you know, who are, who's committing gun violence? Yeah, Overwhelmingly, you know, men. Okay, men, I believe they're hurting. And I do not think demonizing these men is helping fix the problem. I don't think demonizing people with different political views from us is helping the problem. I think, and this sounds, I'm sure, in the eyes of many, people are going to say it sounds like a little snowflake and I don't really care. But I think compassion, compassion for myself when I'm hurting, compassion for other people when they're hurting is actually the solution because this whole male model of just suck it up and be tough, you know, fight back the tears, you know, don't worry that your knee is bleeding because you've fallen down and you're six years old and, and you've skinned it and it really hurts. Just go back in the game and play. I don't think that's working for us. And I think those kind of attitudes have contributed to this go back to where you came from Mm -hmm. society that we're living in currently. I think as women, there's so much that we have to offer that's very different from it. It's not better, it's not worse, it's different and we need to start to embrace it. And I love, frankly, the fact that this program Mindful Self-Compassion was created by a male and female team. And Chris Germer has talked, one of the two co-developers, he's talked about how it, I mean, he talks very publicly about how it's helped him cope with this extraordinary fear of public speaking. And anyone who knows this content, Chris Germer, you say his name and you think, oh my God, he's like a guru in this field. And then you hear his story about how he almost had to give up public speaking engagements because he was so paralyzed by fear (laughs) and how mindful self-compassion helped him out with this. And you go, okay, men are hurting. And here's someone that's, a, again, in a small little field that I'm in with this, in the meditation, mindful, self-compassion, people know his name. And you hear his story, and you go, okay, this is but one example of how anyone, but also a guy that looks like he's got it all together, mm-hmm. can benefit from mindful self-compassion. Yes. Gigi, you... you were telling me before we started the mic that you work with, you help train um, DHS workers, DCFS, uh, to work with children and parents, right? Right. That is one of our audiences, yes. Yeah. So I have found that um, people who work in fields like that, or let's say it's Medicare fraud or, or something like that, they see all of these terrible things happening, so they think that everyone is terrible. Does that make sense? So, like, someone who works in Medicaid fraud might think, well, everyone is just ripping off the government. Whether or not it's a tiny fraction, right? Or in in the context of uh, Department of Human Services, foster care or juvenile law, whatever it is, I feel like there is this reaction. And maybe it's because I'm in the legal field, and so I hear a lot of complaining, mm-hmm. but these horrible parents, they're just terrible people. Um, but I... I Okay, so let me try to articulate what I'm what I want to ask. Do you find I think people who go into that probably do it because they care about people and they want to help children and they want to help the state whatever. But do you find that there is this kind of attitude that you have to break through that all these parents are just bad people and not that they come from maybe a broken place? 
I'm going to go with sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I'm also going to go with people who have been in the field for a long time and have witnessed some horrible things over and over and over, have experienced a lot of secondary trauma. Now, that in and of itself brings up, I'm going to go back to mindfulness, self-compassion. One of I mean, when Catherine started, when she brought this up to me to begin with, her initial idea was to open this up to those workers at DCFS that go into the homes and and see these things every single day um, with the idea that the trauma that they may experience on a day-to-day basis, they might be able to, to work with themselves uh, and help themselves and help their clients by working with themselves. And that was because of their schedules and because of the difficulty of the job, we were unable to get that to happen, so we went a different way. Um, but there, there are a lot of things culturally in Arkansas, in the Bible Belt, that are things that we work to do to educate. And I'm going to go off topic slightly, but because it involves Catherine, um, we, I don't know, was it a couple of years ago? I don't know. I think it's three years ago. Um, you know, when we were working to help the DCFS workers um, be able to understand LGBTQ youth either coming into a foster family or a foster child moving into a family that might have LGBTQ parents. And I was, <laughs> as such, um, you know, a woke social worker, um, really surprised at, at how much resistance we received. Now, I think that the training itself was it was evident that it was so needed and it it changed a lot of minds but i think it's i think a whole lot more is needed and anyway catherine provided that training and 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 she has her own measurement scale and all of that that she developed for lots of things but i do believe that here in arkansas we do have a mindset that is difficult to change on many levels. So I, I would have to agree with you, but I think there's hope. I'm glad to hear you have hope. <laughs> I do not yet. I understand. Um, and with that, let's segue into sort of the state of the world right now. And, um, you know, it, and I'll get to kids specifically in a minute, but um, I think we're all in so much pain. I, I think that's why Trump was elected. And we're not doing well. And it's probably for a variety of reasons, but I do feel like, and listen, I have a complete lefty bias, but I feel like there's a lack of compassion generally and that we have, um, uh, you know, as the income distribution, the gap widens, as people lose access to healthcare, all of these things, the the social media, I mean, we just live in this harsh, judgmental world and, I just feel like now more than ever we need, and maybe I'm just projecting, but I mean, I believe that now more than ever we need some compassion and I guess it has to start with ourselves. So which has led me to another question. Does that then make it easier for us to have compassion for others? Yeah, and, and, and that's what the research shows. And, and the first time I ever went to a training on this in November 2017, one of the first things I heard is, 
And must say, mindful self-compassion is an inside-out job. When we start being more compassionate with ourselves, we're able to be more compassionate to the world. And the funny thing is, particularly among social workers, psychologists, nurses, counselors, what I kind of deem the professional helpers, we actually a lot of times go into this because we come from these traumatized backgrounds and we needed someone to be compassionate to us. We didn't receive that compassion, so we say, oh, I'm going to change the world because I'm going to go out and be compassionate towards all these other people because I didn't receive it, particularly in a lot of our cases as a child. But what the research actually shows is the reverse, that when we start applying compassion to ourselves, it makes us more compassionate towards other people. And just as an example, it's like as I have changed my internal dialogue, as I have started saying more and more things or pause to be compassionate to myself, it has transformed my relationship with my family, it's transformed my relationship with my wife, it's transformed my relationships with my colleagues. Like, my buttons get pushed at work, as they invariably do, someone says some really stupid thing in a faculty meeting, and I'm not going like zero to 60 in a couple of seconds wanting to just wring their neck because I'm, kind of taking a few deep breaths. In my in MSC class, we teach actually something, and I'm just, I'm gonna share it here briefly because it is such a fabulous tool. It's something called the self-compassion break, and it's three steps. We acknowledge that we're suffering, and compa- mindful self-compassion is ultimately a response to suffering, and who isn't suffering these days? Mm-hmm. Even the most rabid pro-Trump person I believe is suffering. I believe the people that are spewing all that hate, I actually believe they're in a lot of pain themselves. Now, I don't agree with the way that they're expressing that, with how they're responding to it, and I can't do anything about it. What I can do is change my response to suffering. So I recognize that I'm suffering, and that's the first actually component of mindful self-compassion. Mindful self-compassion has three components. Mindfulness, awareness of the present moment, common humanity, our connection to other people, and then three, treating ourselves with kindness. So I recognize that I'm suffering. My colleague has pissed me off. I'm suffering, I'm hurting. Second, common humanity. Oh, I bet others in this room are a little irritated too. Okay. Three, may I treat myself with kindness. Okay, what do I need to do? Maybe I just need to take a few deep breaths. Maybe I actually just kind of need to check out and stop listening to her for a few minutes, you know, or a few seconds. Um, So one, two, three. I'm suffering. Others are suffering too. May I treat myself with kindness. And in the course of this, I'm not mouthing off to my colleagues. I'm not ready to jump over the table. Gigi and I actually sit next to each other at faculty meetings. <laughs> Stay. Yeah, she's not trying to hold me back. <laughs> you know. But then as my energy diminishes, I think energy is contagious in group settings, and I think other people's energy, you know, because I think we feed off of each other in faculty meetings. Right? And so as my energy diminishes, as it kind of gets lower, I think other people's energy is diminishing, so I treat myself with kindness, and then I'm not as reactive to her, and it's rather remarkable, because with this mindful self-compassion break, again, I'm suffering, others are suffering too, may I treat myself with kindness? I can do that literally in less than 15 seconds, and that 15 seconds that I give myself saves me hours and hours of time, because if I mouth off at her, if I say something that's that's less than respectful, then I gotta experience the guilt, I probably got to apologize and make amends, creates a ripple effect in our relationship. My colleagues are going, oh, there she is, mouthing off again. You know, so those 15 seconds has a long-term impact in a lot of ways. I hear what you're saying. And I'm also thinking, yeah, but shouldn't she know that she has upset people? Like, like, and, and I don't know what kind of comment you're talking about that she might make, but... 
should that also should it be a teachable moment? I mean, like, what do you do with that when you feel like it's someone who maybe has said something racist or some sort oh. of ist? I mean, that you might call out, right? Catherine would call that out. Right. Yeah, I would call it out, but the way I would do it is different. Mm. And one of the reasons, actually, here's the thing. One of the reasons I was so drawn to self-compassion is because I, I, I figured out I have been teaching cultural diversity classes to social work students for 17 years. I've been teaching it my entire social work academic career. And one of the things I'm seeing is that when students become aware that they've committed a microaggression, when they become aware of their own racist, sexist, ableist, you know, heterosexist attitudes, it's often accompanied by a lot of guilt and shame, okay? And as a society, we, re- we reinforce that. We demonize the racist, we demonize the sexist. I don't think that works for us. I actually think we need to approach racism and sexism and the other isms from a point standpoint of compassion and understanding, that we're taught all of this stuff and we can make choices to unlearn it because we learn it. We can make choices to respond to it compassionately. So again, to get back to your original kind of question and point, with that, I hear someone making a racist comment or sexist comment. Actually, to be honest, I'm more likely to hear, particularly among university faculty, more likely to hear homophobic Mm. comments because faculty are pretty aware that making a sexist or racist comment doesn't fly well, but homophobia, it's a little more accepted in the state, particularly in academic communities, which is unfortunate. But I can approach that with this awareness that I'm suffering when they do, and I don't want to rip their head off, and I'll use it as a teachable moment, but I don't want to hit them in the face with a frying pan. I'm going to approach it from a softer approach with an awareness that, frankly, if they've made that kind of comment, they're probably suffering even if they're not aware of it. And it's probably something that I may call it out in a group setting, but I'm going to do it in a different way. And then I'm going to find a way to follow up with them and have a very private and hopefully non-threatening, or I'm going to approach it non-threatening. I don't know what they're, what's going on for them, way, and use it so that I approach it gently instead of let me demonize you, let me tell you all the things that you did wrong, because then what happens is all the defenses go up. Mm -hmm. All the defenses go up and then people, they just put up all these walls and it doesn't change behavior. I think when we approach ourselves with compassion, when we approach people with compassion, we're more likely to get changes in behavior. I just don't think this, this angry society works. That said, that's not to say I'm not angry, I'm angry a lot, but what happens now is I get angry and I go, oh, I'm angry. This is a moment of suffering. Um, and I, I will not say his name right, I rarely do, but there's a very well-known meditation teacher known throughout the world, his name is Thich Nhat Hanh. Mm-hmm. And he talks actually about approaching our anger as we would if a baby was crying. What would we do with that baby? We would pick it up and hold it gently in our arms. We would offer it softness and kindness and we'd say, oh, let me take care of you. We would sing to it perhaps, but we would talk to it in a very soft way, kind of like my voice has changed right now, just in the act of talking about what I think I would talk to that child like. That's how we need to approach our own anger. And I think when we start to approach other people's anger, we get a different response. Because if you're yelling at that screaming baby, the baby's gonna go all over the place. But when we soften our tone towards ourselves and each other, you know, we become, if you will, more malleable, more teachable in a lot of ways. And I think that's the way that we need to change our dialogue. But it starts with changing our dialogue with ourselves. It starts with 
changing what in mindful self-compassion we call our inner critic. The part of us that says, oh, like for example, right now, there, my inner critic is going crazy. It's saying, Catherine, shut up. You're talking too long. Let Gigi talk. Let Stephanie ask some questions. I get very self-conscious in these moments. But this is this great moment because I know that this is what I do. I've actually named my inner critic and I'm sitting here having kind of two conversations, this conversation with the two of you, but also saying, oh, hello, my inner critic I've named Ichabod. As of Friday, <laughs> you know, Great. it was IC became Ichabod. Inner critic equals IC equals Ichabod. Ichabod, I see you. I understand that you as the inner critic are simply trying to protect me from further harm, but I've got this. I'm okay. I don't need you right now. Thank you for the assistance you're trying to give me, but I'm good. I've got this. So go take a little nap, and I'll we'll be in touch. I'm sure we're going to be in touch probably in about five minutes from now when I think I'm talking too long again. <laughs> but approaching that inner critic, which is within us all the time, with the softness, like, honey, I see you, Ichabod. I just don't happen to need you right now. I've got this. So constantly changing that dialogue, that anger, that inner critic, it never goes away. What has changed is I've got tools and I'm hoping to offer people other tools. I don't know that I actually teach. I think I offer people things that they can take. You know, I teach, um, I offer them and I guide them. Do I teach? Who knows? I think that's subject to debate. But I want to offer people tools so that they can respond in a different way to their own anger, to their own inner critic, and consequently to other people's anger, other people's inner critic in a fundamentally different way. And as I tell my students, I think what we can do is micro gestures have macro impacts. Small little things we do have a ripple effect into this world. So if the only thing I change myself in all of this is me, I think it's still going to have an impact. And it's classic systems theory that I know you as an attorney know and social workers practice and teach all the time. You know, one part of the system changes, another part of the system changes, and the world will change. Yes. Deep breaths. <laughs> and I don't always do it. I mean, if I do it 50% of the time, that's great. But I also have learned to approach things from the standpoint if I put some good into the world, that's better than no good into the world. So anything I do, some, S-O-M-E, is better than none. Some, mindful self-compassion, is better than none. Some, so, compassion, is better than none. Because right now, I think we need all the compassion we can get in this world. Indeed, okay. indeed. And it's, for me personally, uh, it is, it can be hard. Like, I tell myself almost every day, I've got to start meditating, because I know the, I know that scientific proof of the benefits, you know, of meditation, but I just can't make myself schedule it. You know what I mean? And so, um, so I know I need to do it and then I'll feel bad cause I'm not doing it. And then I'm like, well, fuck it. You know, I guess I'm not going to do it, you know? So I'll change that. But going back to what you were saying, hey, um, I'm going to interrupt because this is such a key learning opportunity. And that's kind of what I do. It's like, these are, this is a teachable moment. I don't want to let it go. The key thing with mindful self-compassion is I took a break from meditation, okay? And I've been trying to get back, and I kind of did what you're doing. You know, I said, oh, I need to meditate. And then I didn't, and then I didn't meditate the next day and the next day. And I went on for like three months and didn't meditate. The key thing, though, is with mindful self-compassion, I just said, okay, honey, maybe today's not your day to meditate. Mm. It's all okay. But you had the intention, so I validated the intention. Kind of went, oh, gave myself some added rules, kind of went, oh. Good job, Catherine. You didn't meditate, but you thought about meditating. You want to meditate? You're going to meditate when the time is right. So I patted myself on the back for that, but also approached this awareness that I did meditate with softness and gentleness. 
and I didn't feel guilty about meditating. And what do you know? Over time, I started meditating again when I needed to meditate. And that's exactly what I needed to do. I think if I'd beat myself up, it's kind of like, oh, you know, you go on a diet, you know, mm-hmm. and you have a piece of cake. It's like, well, I had one piece of cake. I'm going to eat the whole cake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we beat ourselves up. But what if we had the one piece of cake and didn't beat ourselves up? For eating that one piece of cake. I don't think we'd eat the whole piece of cake because I think this beating ourselves up, it becomes a sport unto itself. Right. You know, and then we look for others to beat yeah. ourselves up too. But if we just say, you know what, you had a piece of cake, that's okay. Maybe your body needed the cake and oh my gosh, wasn't that chocolate peanut butter cake really good? Mm-hmm. Oh yes. And just. And life is short. Life is short. <laughs> I just came from lunch and had peanut butter chocolate pizza as the first slice of pizza. <laughs> Were you at Larry's? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I've never heard of such a thing. It's, it's technically dessert, but it's only dessert if you eat it last, right? So, <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, it's, yeah this is probably, it's probably an off my conversation. <laughs> yeah, no, we should talk about our joy. Um, so, a little bit back to what you were talking about. Um, my husband and I, Jason and I, have talked quite a bit about um, the Me Too movement, trying to be woke you know, and learn about privilege and all of the things. And I feel like we do people a disservice by attacking them for not doing it right. Right. And so, and I, I am projecting a little bit because there have been a couple of times where some African-American friends or people I know have told me I'm doing it wrong. And I'm like, well, but at least I'm trying, (laughs) you know? And so, and I will keep trying, but there are people I think that we are just, um, just pushing away from their what they want to learn um, and they're trying to figure it out and they know that they haven't done it right in the past and they're trying to figure out sort of their place in the world or whatever it is and I think that we need to let people have that journey I think I believe that we have to meet people where they are mm-hmm. now you know if they keep if they keep doing things and not really actually learning that might be a different conversation but I can't remember exactly what you said in this context, but I do think that we also back to sort of our, our current culture, uh, call out culture, you know, I mean, do people need to lose their jobs over some stupid thing that they said? And maybe they just need to learn from that. And I don't know where the lines are, but I do feel like that we are in a time of overreaction. But I think it's also kind of a new period of, it's a period of new power right? Now everyone has a voice to say what they want, and we can often impact those people we're mad at, their lives. And um, maybe we're just in this weird spot right now. Do you you guys ever think about that? I feel conflicted about a lot of that. Um, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know that I don't know that I have a real statement about that, but I well, think and, that... Well, and let me just also acknowledge we're, we're, we're painting with very broad brushes. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that, I think that, uh, I think that we should expect uh, our leaders to be more responsible than, than I am. You know, I, I would expect more of our leaders than I would expect of myself when we're talking about... Um, policy by social media or something like that so let me use an an example the woman who tweeted before she got on the plane to go to africa going to africa hope i don't get aids oh i didn't hear about that okay didn't hear about stupid joke not funny to a lot of people she had no idea that this had blown up on Twitter while she's on this, I don't know, 12-hour journey to Africa or whatever. She gets off the plane, sees what's happened. She's lost her job. She's 
and she was a PR person, so we would think the PR people would know not to say something like that. But is that something she could have learned from, or should her life have been ruined by saying some asinine thing on Twitter? See, I again, I think you know, there's a balance between kind of these policy issues and these teachable moments, you know. So, part of me says, I go to policy. I think good policy makes for, you know, if it's implemented, and, and Gigi's, I think, a lot more of a macro person than I am and has this amazing macro brain. But when we think about how do we craft good policy, if we craft good policy and then we follow good policy, what does the policy say about comments made on social media and the impact on her job, you know? And, and if it gave them latitude to fire her, if it's an at-will state, you know, then it seems like they were within their legal rights. But what are we missing? I think that there was a teachable moment, you know. When, when a student in our program, in a social work class, says something really stupid, do I ask them to leave the room? If they make a homophobic comment, do I ask them to leave the room? Or, or do I lean into that? Do I lean into the ugliness? Do I lean into my discomfort, to my reaction with that, and say, let's work with that? Because we, I know if I demonize that, what happens? They shut down and everyone around them shuts down. So if I'm in touch with my stuff, thinking, okay, they pushed my button, I'm suffering, others are suffering too, may I be kind to myself, at the same time, I'm leaning into it, I can use that as a teachable moment. And to get back to your comment about hope, that's what gives me hope. These tools, I don't think I would be surviving this, the Trump administration if I didn't have these tools. If I didn't have mindful self-compassion in the way that I do. If I wasn't teaching it because it gives me hope. When I approach someone from a standpoint of compassion, when I approach myself from a standpoint of compassion, it enables me to approach these moments of teachable moments and also be less reactive. I, I think probably behind the scenes there was a lot of reactivity going on and she was probably seen she's a PR person you said she's probably seen as a PR nightmare for her job this PR person has done this thing oh my gosh let's just get rid of her okay does it solve the problem no and it created all these problems for her in her life presumably let's work with that let's lean into it instead we're just reacting and pushing people away yeah and I've I've worked with a lot of homophobic students I actually work really well with them I'm not going to demonize them demonizing the Trump supporter I just don't think it works I think They've been drawn to him because they're looking for a sense of culture. They're looking for a sense of belonging. And this is just my personal theory, obviously. But, you know, typically the white men, I think they're feeling a sense of alienation and connectedness that women have with each other, that people of color have, that white men are lacking because they don't have the sense, you know, beyond kind of a privileged sense of having a sense of identity as white men. So how do we give them a sense of belonging? How do we respond to them with kindness and compassion? A lot of people would say they don't deserve it. No, we're all deserving of kindness and compassion. How do we lean into them? How do we do that? I don't know, but I think it's what we need to do because I just don't think the demonizing different groups is working. Okay, you're racist, you're homophobic, therefore I don't want to have anything to do with you. Instead, let's lean into it and, and try and make these teachable moments. I think just digging a little bit beneath the surface would teach us a lot. Um, you know, when people say or do things or whatever they are, whether they're Trump supporters or, I don't know, Bernie's, whoever it is, um, if you just ask a couple of follow-up questions, I think you can pretty quickly find out where it's coming from. Um, and it is usually a place of discomfort or pain, and yeah. Um, so do you do you agree with what Catherine has said? You seem to react more strongly to that 
story? Um, I do. I do. Um, I, I think. I think she's looking at it from a, a point of faculty to students, and I completely agree with her in that in that case. And as an employer versus an employee, the the employer has to. It's it's like a cost benefit analysis. At what point, you know, is it is it worse for my company? And I don't know what company that is, but my my PR guy just did the absolute PR nightmare, and I need to save the company's. PR, so you know, I this is I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. So in business, I'm not saying I wouldn't make the same decision. Is it a teachable moment? Yes, um, but but you know, them's the breaks in business sometimes, and that's not that's not very social worky, but but it is as an administrator sometimes the thing you have to do. Um, but I think. Two, we are being led by an administration that can say anything on social media and is never held accountable for anything said on social media, much worse than whatever she said. Um, so I think it's very difficult for us as a nation, as individuals, to know what is the line anymore? Mm-hmm. What is the line and when did we cross it? And oh, now we get in trouble for crossing it? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it, we're living in bizarro world. It is bizarro world. So, yeah. so, so, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's anyone's guess. I mean, so, so that was the only part I just, I don't disagree with what she said, but certainly if you are a faculty member, it is your, your duty to use it as a teachable moment for a student. Mm-hmm. As an employer trying to save your business, it's it might be a little bit of a different role. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that people in leadership positions, law enforcement, teachers, there are people who are supposed to be the standard bearers. Right. Right. And, and they're not supposed to act like we do. Right. They're not supposed to talk like we do in that, in that way. Right. And so... Um, America's supposed to be an example for the rest of the world. So I, I am with you on that for sure. I think the problem is when you've got a president who makes racist, sexist, mm-hmm. homophobic, misogynistic, ableist remarks, it permissions other people mm-hmm. to do it. The problem is there's no consequences seemingly. If anything, um, he's rewarded in a lot of cases for these remarks. But then, if there's something good to come out of this, we see this guy that is, you know, kind of our, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I think he sees himself this way. He's our supreme leader. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. his perception, you know, and that's terminology that is used in other countries. <laughs> you know, when you see our quote unquote supreme leader, if you will, saying these things without any consequences, then I think other people think they can say them without consequences. But one of the things that's that's changing over time is there are consequences, and you can't mouth off on social media. And so hit the pause button, you know, hit the save button, you know, whatever it is. And that's one of the things 
the mindfulness actually teaches us is, is it teaches us to hit the pause button. Mm-hmm. It teaches us, you know, to take a breath or a half a breath before we hit the send button or before we mouth off to someone. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I wish our president would do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and think about why he is the way he is, how he was raised, you know. So I can, I, I do not like the man, but I can have compassion for where he comes from, mm-hmm. you know, um, and how his father uh, treated them. So I would like for him to go away, <laughs> for sure. But um, so, okay, so I want to cover two more things quickly. We're running a little bit short on time, but um, the the program for teenagers and also um, just briefly about... Uh, I guess it's white privilege. I don't know. Something some you talked about right when you came in and, and mm-hmm. had posted. So just talk about those two things. Okay, so as I noted, I'm the only person trained in the state of Arkansas to teach mindful self-compassion. And so formally, I'm the only mindful self-compassion trained teacher in the state of Arkansas. And really, that's an unbiased self-promotion colleague. And I say unbiased, I'm kind of joking. But, you know, one of the things actually we teach in mindful self-compassion is that self-appreciation is a good thing yeah. as long as it doesn't lead to narcissism. And I'm really proud of this, okay? So literally just a few days ago, I returned from the teacher training for something called Making Friends with Yourself. And that is the mindful self-compassion program for adolescents so 13 to 18 and then young adults 18 to 25 what's interesting is we we had someone in the class we had a couple of graduate students in the class who one of them I know to be 23 I don't think she would have benefited from the making friends with yourself program I think clearly she and the other one were you know capable of doing the adult program but I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to start we have to start with the kids, you know, because I think we're, we're raising a group of kids and adolescents who don't really know how to deal with their emotions mm-hmm. because they're not spending enough time in nature. They're not being taught the skills to kind of self-soothe. They're not taught, being taught the skills to identify, oh, I'm feeling something, I don't really know what it is, but, you know, all of a sudden I notice my feet are tapping on the ground or I'm punching the table or something, I don't really know why I'm doing that or what's going on, but more significantly, I don't really have a good response to it. Okay. So with making friends with themselves, excuse me, making friends with yourself, what we've done is we, uh, these two wonderful women, um, Lorraine Hobbs and Karen, and I won't do it, it's, I think it's B-L-U-T-H, and that's probably wrong, but um, they have modified the Mindful Self-Compassion Program for the 13 to 25-year-olds. And having been trained in that, I hope to offer a class in that within the next year. To the white privilege issue. So, um, before, what, before we go there, can you talk a little bit about uh, girls, teenage girls, young girls? Mm-hmm. Um, I have nieces who are about to be 12 and 13, and the 13-year-old, has also, his, she's about to go into her second year of middle school, and it was just all drama all the time, and you know, someone who used to be a good friend now picks on her and doesn't like her and you know all the social media and I mean just everything I also uh I have been listening to a very interesting podcast about I think it's called the butterfly effect 
uh, it's called The Last Days of August. And basically, it's about the butterfly effect of, of the porn industry, about free porn online and how it's affected the industry. But they also talk about how it affects our relationships as humans, right? And that so many kids now are not having sex, which you would think would be a good thing, but it's because they don't need to. But they also don't know what real sex or real relationships are. Um, and there's this hookup culture where it's everything is by text now and exchanging selfies, nudie, nudes, or, you know, whatever. And so I think there's so much going on right now. Um, and is this something that was addressed in this? We didn't specifically address what you're talking about, but we're talking about a culture. I mean, teenagers got a lot of raging hormones going sure. on. And so their brains and their emotions are all over the place. And so what this program does is it gives them the tools um, the adult class is three hours a week for basically nine sessions. The, the adolescent class is two hours a week for eight weeks. And so in those two hours, all of the activities are tailor, tailored towards kids. It starts out with an art activity, which is aimed at getting at a different side of the brain because kids are so busy. How many kids are actually, how many 15-year-olds spend any time doing art? Activates a different part of the brain. But essentially what it's doing is it's helping kids identify in the way that kids can, or the way that adolescents and young adults can, the emotions that are going on, and it offers a tool in which to respond. So, you know, when your niece or my niece, you know, when a young girl, you know, has like broken up with her best friend, who she was super tight with two days ago, and who's now saying really mean things about her, two days later, she's experiencing pain, but what does she do with it? A lot of kids have no idea. Mm -hmm. So we're offering them tools. And that also applies for the boys, you know, who didn't get chosen. This, you know, this sounds very stereotypical, but absent better example, didn't get chosen for the soccer team, you know, where, you know, whoever he asks to the eighth grade dance, whether it's a boy or a girl has rejected him. What does he do with that? We're not offering kids the tools. Too many parents, even if they have those skills, they don't have the time. Because, you know, you've got parents who are working many, many jobs, you know, such a culture of busyness where they're, you know, transporting all their kids to all these different activities. So this program offers them not only the skills and the tools in which to kind of self-soothe, self-comfort, but a support group, you know, in a very different way. Because ultimately when I offer it, it'll be open to anyone in the central Arkansas area. We'll keep it small, probably 10 or 12 people, and they'll come together, hopefully, in, in my fantasy life where this all works out perfectly. Um, He's so loud for such a little dog. <laughs> So, um, but they'll come together and they'll have support with each other and they'll be like, oh, see, I'm not the only one. Because one of the things we do in all of our classes is if someone says, like, you know, well, when this happened, I felt, you know, a little bit of shame. Very common thing is we say, anyone else ever felt like that? Sense of common humanity. Others are sharing that experience as well. And a lot of times teens think they're the only ones. You know, there's that sense of isolation. Oh my gosh, I'm the only one whose best friend suddenly hates their guts. And we were hanging out two days ago. We just had a sleepover two days ago. So again, trying to give the kids the tools that I certainly didn't have. And if we can give them the tools now, maybe they become higher functioning adults. That's may, the hope. Maybe. And one thing, uh, Stephanie had, had mentioned earlier about uh, the rising rates of 
particularly teen girl suicide. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was younger, it's like suicide wasn't on the table oh my gosh. or a heroin addiction wasn't on the table. And now those things are all on the table. And so there's self-mutilation, there's bulimia, there's all this stuff is on the table. And so to be able to hear you say, to be able to work with one's shame with tools or to work with those kinds of feelings without going to these things that are on the table um, sounds sounds crucial for these age groups. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, I, it had never occurred to me to work with adolescents. I mean, I went into this thing I was going to teach adults, but the more I learned about this program and the more I found myself thinking, oh my gosh, what if I had some of these tools when I was 13 instead of waiting to learn them when I was 50? How would my life have been different? Mm-hmm. And I absolutely agree that, you know, maybe you've got a kid, and again, some is better than none. Maybe you've got a boy or girl, and they're cutting themselves 10 and 12 times a week. If we can reduce that by one or two incidents per week by giving them a tool maybe they can use once or twice, I think we've made progress. Mm -hmm. Some is better than none. You know, maybe we can teach them if they use one tool from the whole program, whether it's the here and now stone, the self-compassion break, the you know any number of meditations, one tool that they can use, even if they use it once in six months, I'm happy with that. Mm-hmm. We want to celebrate success, and again, look at the positives because the kid who cuts herself two times a week less—that's progress. Mm-hmm. That's progress, and we need to celebrate that. And that's two times less that she might cut too far. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Uh, I would love to see this as a, just a normal curriculum uh, in, in public school or in all schools, really. I mean, just something where you have a class like this that is part of health ed or what sex ed, whatever it is. Um, well, I will tell you, I had, I had an unexpected conversation with uh, Kathy Webb, one of our you know, city uh, board of directors. Yeah, board of directors. And kudos to her because she is such an amazing force in our community and she'd seen on Facebook some of the things I was doing and she had some questions about it. and just to cut to the chase she's been working with a group of people and they're actually going to do some social and emotional learning in the Little Rock school system here starting in September so I you know I hope that you'll Great. find a way to kind of connect with her and invite her to talk about that and I think that the elementary school I'm focusing on the adolescent I think the elementary school group is her target because there's a you know, it's my understanding that her belief is if we can get them at an even younger age, mm-hmm. we can even do more prevention. Mm-hmm. So, again, I have a lot of hope for this community. It doesn't mean I don't get depressed, but when I get depressed, it's like, oh, well, that's a moment for self-compassion. I'm suffering. Mm-hmm. Let me extend some kindness to myself. Okay, and now, and I hate to rush through this last one, but, and now... Okay, so I've spent most of my life, uh, my adult life anyway, as what I would deem kind of a diversity and social justice educator. And it's really why I got into mindful self-compassion. It's like shaming people and, as I just say, hitting people in the frying pan when they develop this awareness of having committed, if you will, microaggression or having held, you know, these beliefs all their life that they hold these racist, sexist beliefs, etc. I don't think it works. So a big part of my journey has been how do I, what are the tools in the mindfulness movement? And I think self-compassion is a way of dealing with this awareness, okay? So next week, and presumably by the time this airs, I'll have been to it, um, I'm going to a workshop actually in Milwaukee that one of my colleagues who's also a mindful self-compassion teacher had told me about. And officially the title is Disrupting Systemic 
white privilege in the mindfulness movement. I believe that's the official title. So I got to spend the next eight days reading this book. I can't remember the title, but I keep putting it off. I'm a procrastinator. And so again, I'm a procrastinator. That's an opportunity for self-compassion. But I've really got to spend probably three or four days, excuse me, three or four hours each of the, for each of the next eight days kind of cramming this book on white privilege and awareness of white identity, which I'm pretty in touch with as well. And then and it's only white people. And that's, that's a whole nother conversation. We could probably do a whole nother conversation about my belief that we need to create safe spaces for white people to talk about white identity and how our journey is different from people of color and to really talk about what white identity is but also talk about how we were raised in these very racist ways and to figure out how to respond to that and I believe again because I believe it's it can be used to address just about anything I believe mindful self-compassion can be used as a tool for that awareness. But I'm really excited about going to, back to that, going to that workshop and then bringing some of the tools back. And it's actually in conjunction with something that I'm hoping to do that didn't come up in our conversation, but I actually attend um, St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in West Little Rock. And they are very receptive to the MSC work I've done. They hosted the first uh, intro to MSC workshop I did. They're hosting um, actually the class that I'll be offering starting September 10th. But uh, the Episcopal Diocese in the US, I mean, the big Episcopal Diocese has actually developed a curriculum called Sacred Ground and it's for white people who want to learn to do and to learn about. They want to learn to do anti-racist work and to learn about their own sense of white identity. And that's a 10 session curriculum. So all of these pieces are kind of coming together for me because it puts all these things together. I'm very passionate about the diversity work. I'm very passionate about the mindful self-compassion work, but I'm I'm so passionate about because I believe that they work really well together. Because if we just tell people they're being racist or sexist, but we don't give them tools to address that, we don't move towards change and progress. Mm -hmm. We, what's happening is we're creating a culture in which, okay, I'm a racist, but now what? Okay, I got this big sledgehammer and beat myself up, now what? And it sucks to realize this, now what? What do I do with it, okay? So I'm hoping that the sacred groundwork I'll be doing with St. Margaret's Episcopal Church, the mindful self-compassion work, and then going to this uh, dismantling white privilege um, and the mindfulness movement conference, I'm hoping all three of these will come together and facilitate some conversations that we can have just as a community, because I think we've got to start doing that work. The challenge is we all have to find the time, we have to find the group of people to do it, we have to we have to create safe spaces in which to do that, and we're all so busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, we have to choose our priorities in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so what you just said was what I was trying to articulate earlier, is meeting people where they are and giving them, I guess, the tools to do better. Uh, and one thing I think that a lot of white people struggle with is just when you're raised as a white person, you don't have to pay attention to the ways in which the system hurts other people. And it's hard to identify those things sometimes, you know, like we're not all learning about redlining neighborhoods, you know, uh, um, like ta Coates wrote about in his Atlantic piece that really made me come around on the idea of reparations. You know, we're not going traveling throughout the city to see who's got sidewalks and who doesn't, or, you know, so I, I, 
I see resistance to this idea of white privilege because people think, what are you talking about? I was poor, I was beaten, I was, you know, all of these terrible things. I don't get anything from being white. And so that's not exactly what we're talking about, right? It's, and so I think that can be really hard for people to understand. Um, but it's obviously so important. Uh, and one more thing that I want to say um, about people of color, it was a Death, Sex, and Money episode. I, again, I listen to so many podcasts, I can never remember where I heard things, but I know it was Death, Sex, and Money, and it was two African-American men, and one of them said something about black women and said, you know, I was never raised to worry about black women because they're so strong, they can take it. Right, so we could treat them badly because they they can take it, and 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 I say this also in the context of knowing African American women who say it's just not um, kind of socially acceptable for them to go to therapy or to hurt or to show their own. I almost just said weaknesses, but that's how it's perceived, right? And so. Um, Anyway, I hope there is also a, a component for people of color who are not kind to themselves because no one else is kind to them. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it makes total sense. And the group that's doing the workshop I'm going to in Milwaukee, they're also doing, it, the organization is run by um, an African-American or black female. I don't know exactly how she identifies them, going on the basis of her picture online. But she's also doing another workshop for people of color to talk about their pain. But I'm reminded of Peggy McIntosh's work, and she wrote a very well-known article um, called Unpacking Our Knapsack, and it talks about you know, privileges, you know, the privileges of being white. And one thing she says is that when you're white, you have the luxury of being oblivious. You don't have to think about right. what other, you know, what people of color are experiencing. And so a lot of the examples you use, that's the luxury of being oblivious. Right. I don't have to think about you know, the fact that, you know, our community may treat people of color differently because it doesn't affect me. Well, it does. Right. It does. And this whole concept of being woke, you know, it's like, okay, a lot of woke people, they still don't want to deal with the pain. Mm -hmm. They still don't want to deal with the pain. Yeah. And if I just don't, if I ignore it, if I continue to engage in the luxury of being oblivious, then the problem doesn't exist. You know, denial is, is fabulous, but again... I'll say it again. Mindful self-compassion offers us tools for responding to that pain, for, for helping kind of muddle through some of that denial so that we can actually deal with our own feelings and then hopefully work towards solutions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, Gigi knows this because we visited a little bit, but my sister died last week. Oh, I'm sorry. Wow. And... My husband was here right before you guys came, and 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 I was cleaning, so he was wondering what was going on. <laughs> I was like, well, people are coming over. Um, but I said, I, I said who it was. It was you and, and Gigi, and, and he knows you, but mm-hmm. he's never met you. And um, that I almost canceled because I'm not feeling anything good right now. But but then I said, but this is probably exactly what I need right now. And I just just want to tell you that it helps. Oh, thank you. And. Um, it's almost like commiserating in a way, you know, and like, and I was also telling Gigi that I've really isolated myself from people and friends and that I didn't feel like I had anyone I could go to, even though I know I could call any of my friends and they'd be like completely whatever I needed, they needed to do for me. But, um, it's, it's almost like I don't want to burden them. And I, anyway, I'm not trying to like have a therapy session. I'm just saying this stuff really works. And, um, I definitely have an acute pain right now, 
but I have a general malaise as well in my life. And I, and that's why I've been trying lately to reconnect with people and to um, just kind of put my shit down for a minute and like just be a human being. And I think that if we could do that more as a society and, um, you know, just again, just I keep saying as humans, but but we are and, and we're complex and we're complicated and and um, you know we're good and we're bad and we're all the things. But uh, I really hope that we um, I'm ready for us to start reacting the other way. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's gotten to this what I consider this really bad point and what you were talking about. Kind of let's reser- reverse that process mm-hmm. and let's get back into the game and you know figure out our priorities. And so I. I mean, I just can't tell you. I know I'm just babbling right now, but I, I really love this, and I love the idea of this, and and I am, um, I'm proud of you too. I think it's really cool what you're doing, and you seem um, happy and content about it. Is that true? Yeah, Do you I really feel like. Yeah, I really believe in this work, and again, what you're talking about, like with your sister dying and everything. First of all, I'm just, I'm, I'm so sorry. My heart just aches for you, but also your response and mindful self-compassion. We talk about that. You're. You could, you know, when there is that you're, you're experiencing the pain of disconnection, and when we feel disconnected, we have a tendency to further isolate, mm-hmm. and then it's like a snowball mm-hmm. effect. And so when I feel shame, I start feeling like, oh, I'm this terrible person. I'm talking too much. Less, you know, it's like I want to go into my little safe corner mm-hmm. and not connect with people. But through mindful self-compassion, it's like, oh, that's the pain of disconnection. Okay, well then, let me just put myself out there more. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you, mm-hmm. I mean. Thanks. Because to me, that's the pain of disconnection. But kudos to you for recognizing what you needed. So thank you. And thank you for honoring us mm-hmm. by, by having this conversation. I, I'm just so, Stephanie, I've been impressed with you from the day I met you, and, and that only continues. So I'm sitting here with two of my favorite women that I hold in such high regard in this community. I'm just in my glory. I just feel like I'm floating. Thank the you. moment. Uh, likewise, likewise. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I love you, and yeah. um, and I love you too, just in a different way. I understand. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll we'll need some time. Yes, you know. I get that. Uh, I get but that. yeah, I. Um, anyway, I appreciate everything you, you do. There aren't enough of you, um, and you probably feel that way too. <laughs> You'd probably like to clone yourself so you wouldn't have to do it all. I'm right? gonna clone yeah. Gigi. I do. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I do. I, she's one of the few people I've missed sitting next to at a faculty meeting. <laughs> But you start back this fall. Yes, she does. Uh, classes start four weeks from today at yeah. ALR. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you get to yeah. whatever you need to do. So yeah. I'm going to shut it down. Thank you. Thank I you. Really, I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Mm-hmm.